welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Mad in America podcast. I'm Amy Biancoli, staff writer, and our guest today is Tara Theogarajan, founder and chief scientist of Sapien Labs, a nonprofit organization that runs the Mental Health Million Project and its annual Mental State of the World Report, which uses an online survey that tracks mental well-being among internet-enabled populations around the world. The 2021 report just published was the project's second annual effort, and it was authored by uh, Thara Garajan and lead scientist Jennifer Newsom. It surveyed more than 233,000 internet users in 34 countries. The overall objective, write the authors, is to, quote, provide an evolving global map of mental well-being and enable deep insights into its drivers. So it has some fascinating results uh, with considerable implications regarding mental health and the factors that contribute to it. And I'm really grateful to you for joining us today. So just to hop into the results, what's particularly notable, what pops out is that Venezuela actually topped out the list of 34 countries for its aggregate score of mental well-being. And at the bottom, uh, it was English-speaking countries, 30% reported themselves as distressed and struggling. Um, could you speak to that a bit? Like, why? What are the contributing factors and ramifications? Well, well, first of all, thank you so much, uh, you know, for um, the opportunity to be here and talk about this. Uh, so with that question, you know, when we saw Venezuela at the top of the list, we were extremely surprised because it's absolutely not what you would expect. And, you know, our first reaction was, you know, that can't be right. Let's go back and, you know, make sure we analyzed everything correctly. Um, you know, obviously, you know, Venezuela has gone through all kinds of challenges, and you would really think that, you know, it would be one of the countries closer to the bottom. So, you know, it was really the impetus to start looking at all these different global indicators and, you know, drivers to say what could possibly explain this kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, a ranking. Um, and I think what really has come out of that is... Um, a few key um, insights, which is that cultural factors, and there were a number of different cultural indicators that we looked at that were developed by other groups, uh, such as the GLOBE project, and there's, uh, you know, the Hofstede project, which looked at cultural indicators of different countries. And, um, you know, this is where we really saw the biggest um, correlations. And obviously, a correlation doesn't necessarily mean that that's the absolute cause. But I think in this particular report, our goal was to, uh, you know, demonstrate what kind of factors seem to be related so that it could um, drive further investigation. To give you an example of countries higher on individualism um, and performance orientation tended to have lower mental well-being um, metrics. And conversely, uh, you know, countries which had high in-group and family collectivism tended to have higher mental well-being. One of the, you know, goals of this project is to really be able to look at mental well-being across the spectrum from what we call distressed, which would be people, you know, would, may, would have profiles of clinical disorders to uh, thriving. And, um, 
you know, people move along the spectrum, I think, across their lifetimes in different ways. And it seems that culture has a lot to do with where people are on this. So the other side of it we looked at was economic factors. And obviously, you know, when we looked at this list of countries and, you know, where um, mental well-being was highest, it certainly is not a, a list that, you know, is uh, economically ordered from you know, those with the highest economic uh, um, growth or, or GDP to, to those with the, the least. In fact, it was somewhat um, the other way. And, uh, you know, so when we looked at the relationship of mental well-being to these economic factors and things like, you know, GDP, uh, you know, GDP growth, um, you know, gross national product, and, uh, you know, factors like that, what we saw is that there was a negative correlation, uh, maybe not as strong as the cultural factors, but still a significant, statistically significant negative correlation with mental well-being. And, and the question is really how does, you know, economic systems drive culture and how does then culture end up influencing how people feel? That really popped out at me. Um, and what I found fascinating was the negative correlation between countries that prioritize individualism and achievement with mental well-being, which, as you were saying, that kind of goes against the idea of like, well, if, you, if, if you're focused on achievement, you're present in the world, you're positive, but the takeaways are different, aren't they? They are. And I think there's a story that's sort of um, coming into picture. This idea that, you know, there would be, as you, as you have more economic growth, there's more material prosperity. And the material prosperity is really, in some ways, we've sort of equated uh, to our own well-being. And, you know, I call it our mental prosperity. And um, I think that's, uh, you know, what we're seeing is that that's that's crumbling in some way because the mechanisms of economic growth sort of go hand in hand with certain cultural aspects of um, individualism. And I think that the way it has evolved in the world today, that economic growth is associated with increased individualism and this focus on individual performance and so on. And I think what we realize is that there is a, there is a great human need for belonging to a social uh, fabric. And um, I think that, as we've seen even with the, with the pandemic and the kind of impact that the pandemic has had, that the social isolation has had a very profound impact on the mental well-being of, of people. And, and that sort of points to this idea that the more we isolate ourselves, you know, the worse we start to, to feel about a number of factors. And a lot of different aspects of our mental state start to fall apart. Now, the social self, could you just define that generally and, and speak a little bit to the role that it plays? There are a lot of little uh, sort of takeaways and epiphanies in the report that just struck me as, for lack of a better word, obvious, because it seems so deeply and innately human, like, like just being a social creature is, is good for you. Can, can you talk about what is the social self and how can we build that? Yeah, so, so the social self is really, it's a dimensional metric that uh, we have um, compiled from, you know, the data that is acquired in the mental health quotient uh, assessment, which is really uh, sort of aggregates all the different aspects of 
how individuals see themselves in relation to others and how they are able to relate to other people. You know, so just to back up and give you a sense for how this assessment is uh, designed and structured, um, it's an assessment that captures a large number of mental um, attributes or aspects. And many of these are derived out of the types of symptoms that form part of the traditional you know, DSM-based uh, disorders. So it really covers and maps to, you know, all of the 10 major disorders, but also looks at these aspects, not just on the negative side, but, you know, uh, on the, the positive side as well. So for example, your, your self-worth, uh, it could be poor, but it could also be a great asset to your life. And you could have strengths. So we capture in this both the, the negative side as well as the strengths. And, um, you know, not just do you have this, a problem with this, or do you not, but, you know, how much is it impacting your ability to function in the world? So in a se- in essence, these metrics that come out are sort of functional readouts of, you know, how much you're impaired in your ability to function in the world. And the social self itself, out of 47 elements that are captured, um, it aggregates a subset of those that relate specifically to how um, you, you know, you see yourself and relate to others. So examples of some of the elements that would be in there are your, you know, self-image, self-worth and confidence, your, uh, you know, ability to form relationships with others, your emotional resilience and in, in interactions and um, factors like that. Actually, um, that was one of my questions regarding the mental health quotient, the MHQ, and how it was derived from the diagnostic um, criteria in the DSM for these 10 different disorders. And what interests me particularly is that the the DSM, of course, is closely associated with um, uh, the framework around mental health, especially in English-speaking countries. So that that struck me. But it also offers a very mechanistic biomedical view of mental health, mental well-being. And you're, and you're using this, this a survey, this MHQ, derived from its disorders to really shape a different portrait of the factors involved in mental health. Is that, is that the case? Do you feel like this sends a different message? It's a different lens, let's say. It, it provides a different lens to some of the same things. And so I wouldn't say it's totally different. It's certainly overlapping because it's clearly, you know, we've derived it out of to say, okay, here are all the things that people have considered as something that can go wrong right? Something that is negative in our lives. And, and those are considered, uh, you know, from a diagnostic a, you know, perspective in psychiatry as a symptom. Uh, you can also take the perspective, like when you look at it on a scale from, you know, negative to positive, that these are mental attributes of human beings. And so partly it's saying, like, how do we extend it from just being, uh, you know, are you, are you having a serious problem to where are you on this spectrum? And, you know, um, uh, where do you stand on on this larger um, picture of mental well-being from distress to thriving, as opposed to just carving out the negative end of it? So that's one part. I think the second aspect is that we've also brought into play other factors that you know go beyond what are the, the symptoms in the DSM. For example, you know there's uh, certain elements that were put forth as in the research domain criteria of the NIMH. There are some other factors from psychology that have been included, and the idea was how do we get the most um, you know sort of well-rounded 360 view of an individual's mental makeup. So you're using it as a tool. 
Yeah. So how do you get the uh, 360 degree view in a, in a short, you know, sort of assessment time window? And, uh, you know, it has a lot of flexibility in that because it derives out of all of these symptoms, the symptoms can map back to diagnostic criteria if you would want to do that, but also gives you this ability to look more dimensionally at things like, you know, we have different dimensions that we um, assess, like your mood and outlook overall, the social self, uh, drive and motivation, you know, resilience. And these are subsets where some of the elements certainly overlap. Um, but it just gives you a different perspective on, on you know, what that mental um, makeup of the person is or mental challenges the person is facing. And um, so just to go back to your question on, you know, what is the social self? It's really the dimension that seems to have really declined most substantially um, relative to all others, though followed very closely by mood and outlook. If we think about this from the perspective of challenges to our ability to sort of um, our, our social behavior and ability to integrate into social fabric, it gives us a different way of thinking about solutions as well. And, you know, one of the challenges has been that a lot of, uh, you know, the documentation or the research around the, these um, the declining mental well-being or the crisis in young people has focused on really just the the depression and anxiety symptoms, but it really doesn't give you the sense for what's really uh, driving and 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 you know what's really going wrong. So I think the social self um, really provides a different perspective and a different lens that allows us to think about the problem and what's what's happening in a different way. This is an opinion because we're, uh, it's really sort of uh, a synthesis, I, I would say, of, of the, the research we have, but certainly uh, would need some uh, probably more rigorous um, validation. Uh, but it seems to me that what has happened over the last um, you know, decade, that the, when these changes have started to arise, um, is really has has a lot to do with the internet, which has changed the way uh, you know social interaction takes place. You know, if you look at just what the trends are uh, that we've seen, and this is now you know across all countries, it's not just the United States, but um, compared to you know ten years ago when studies showed that young people had the high, greatest or highest psychological well-being, today what we're seeing is that they're they're you know each younger generation is successively worse and worse. So it's not the case that you know young people are worse off and then as you get older your mental well-being improves. It's more that when you look at these snapshots in the past, young people were always at the top of psychological well-being and now they're way at the bottom. It, uh, I think there are two factors that really are driving this. Um, one is that, uh, you know, with the advent of the internet and smartphones in everybody's hands, what we're seeing now is people are spending seven to 10 hours a day online. And when you do that, um, you don't have time left really to do other things that really enable the social self. And so we're not building the social self uh, or developing the social self in young people. The Mental Health Million Project um, essentially uh, surveys only adults 18 and above. But um, those 18 to 24-year-olds are the first generation that actually grew up on smartphones and the internet. 
And so there's a clear, you know, potentially developmental aspect to all of this. And, you know, by my estimation and sort of a back of the envelope calculation, if you look at generations um, that grew up before the internet, you know, uh, when you weren't spending seven to 10 hours online, you had a lot of time to go out and, you know, you hang, hang out with friends and just do silly things. We always thought of it as, you know, oh, you're out there just wasting time with your friends and, you know, you're not doing something productive and uh, you're all of this stuff. And But really what I think what we're realizing is that, you know, first of all, by the time we got to to adulthood at 18 years old, if we grew up without the internet, we were probably spending, have probably would have spent by then at least 10,000 and up to, you know, even 25,000, 30,000 hours just engaging with other people. Now, when you're online seven to 10 hours a day, it's probably more like 5,000. So even up to one fifth what people probably did prior to the internet and maybe even lower than that. And, you know, if you think about uh, you know, social development, like the capacity for social, pro-social behavior, maybe an innate capacity of humans in the same way that language is an innate capacity for humans. But it has to be developed, right? You don't have language unless you learn it, unless you practice it, and you get greater and greater ease with it as you do more and more and more. And in the same way, I think, that social behavior, it's a very complex activity, right? You have to read facial expressions, you're reading body language, uh, you know, there's tone, there's, um, you have to understand all of these different social norms, and then you have to learn how to regulate your own response, your emotional response, what you say. It's, it's pretty, you know, complex. And you learn how to resolve conflicts, you learn how to cooperate, you learn how to do lots of things. And some of it might seem like you're wasting time, but it's not, it's, it's, you're really actually learning a lot of this uh, ability to really integrate and relate uh, to others. Obviously, the second aspect is what then what you do online. And I think the um, what you're doing online is is uh, creating this very distorted perception of your social reality. And uh, you know, and that obviously has ramifications. I think you know lots of people have studied impact to body image of people seeing these filtered faces or photoshopped um, faces on on um, social media and so on. The virtual environment is more asynchronous, so it doesn't give you the opportunity for that kind of social development and the kind of embedding in social fabric. And I think that, you know, what we're seeing is the consequences of that, that, you know, we're not able to cope with that social environment in the same way. That's that's all really fascinating to me. Born in 63, so I grew up long before the advent of the internet. And yes, you would hang out in person with friends. Sometimes you would find yourself spending time with people you didn't particularly like, but you learned how to navigate that. And you also learned how to be bored. But I've often wondered whether that could be one of the downsides of the internet age that we're in, is that we, uh, as a... as as a rule, we don't know what to do when we're not holding a, a, a smartphone in our hands or when we're not, don't have a tablet or when we're not online. And maybe that's part of what we need to relearn or learn how to navigate. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing, right? We become more comfortable with what we get familiar with. And so if you grow up on the internet or the more time you're spending with that, then you, you're 
I guess it takes time to kind of reorient and say, well, I could do all of these other things too, because, you know, what comes to your mind is what you've been, um, you know, sort of familiar with and are, are doing every day. And, and, um, uh, that said, I think there's there's a lot of positives that the internet gives you because, you know, access to information that you would take weeks to, you know, go to a library and look up in some paper encyclopedia somewhere you could do in, in a matter of minutes. So I think there, you know, there are a lot of positive aspects as well, but, you know, there are two challenges. One is that how do you create a balance in, in the world, like to be able to provide and facilitate the ability to develop the social self, but also get the benefits of the internet. And then I think the other factor is that, you know, social media and all of this just sort of happens so fast. And unlike our integration into the physical social world or the, you know, where there's so much instruction around it, you know, look at your aunt in the eye when you say hello to her, you know, sit like this at the table, don't say that to someone, you know, that's not a nice thing to say. Uh, apologize to your brother. Nobody tells anybody what to do online, right? There's no sort of guidance for young people coming in online. And so it's sort of, a, you know, the environment can be, has become in, you know, lots of parts of the internet and social media very negative. And part of it is that perhaps we have to say, okay, there is these, first of all, we have to develop our in-person social skills and environment because that's, you know, fundamentally and profoundly important for the human psyche. But we also have this new medium, which offers a lot of great things, but we need to have some kind of guardrails and instruction for children on how to navigate that when you get on. It's not a free-for-all. It's, it's sort of like, you know, kids who grow up with no one telling them ever what to do or how to behave. And that's that's the behavior on the internet. Yeah, that's interesting. The, the lack of finger-wagging auntie saying, don't do that. That's mean. That's mean. Don't do that. Exactly. That's mean. Do you know there's a person at the other end of it? How would they feel? Why are you doing that? And, you know, it's sort of, there is none of that. And there, nobody is, nobody's instructed before they're let, let loose <laughs> in these environments. Were there any particular takeaways that surprised you? Um, I know you spoke a little bit at the beginning about being being really surprised by the link between higher income countries and and lower well being. But if you could just expand on that, w were there any particular um, ramifications, takeaways, insights that really startled you a little bit? Well, I think it is startling when you think that you know there, there's probably a balance between material prosperity and some of these other very intangible factors of your sort of social embeddedness and so on. I guess the, the surprise to me was how much they seem to be in somewhat opposition to each other in the current, you know, sort of environment of the world, the current economic state of the world. It's just that our narrative has always been so contrary to that, you know, that we've always thought of, you know, that material prosperity and well-being are, you know, one and the same. And uh, I think, you know, of course, people have always said money can't buy happiness and you have all these other things. But, uh, you know, here it's not just happiness that we're looking at, but the whole host of sort of mental attributes and, and functioning. Uh, I think the surprising thing is that maybe these are actually much more important. And it partly it, this measuring it in this way starts giving us the opportunity to quantify how much more important or how, how important is this? How important is that? Uh, you know, and where's the balance between uh, 
you know, two factors. And I think that's the, um, the real power of having large data like this. And I know there are all sorts of other factors, such as political instability, environmental toxins you talked about, uh, unemployment, education. Um, to what extent should policy be addressed? Did you have feelings about how policy should, should change in response to these insights? Yeah, you know, we're in just year two of this uh, project. And, um, you know, as, the, as we uh, progress, we're going to have much larger data, you know, each year. And, you know, the idea is that we would sample at least a million people each year around the world we'll, should get there in the next couple of years or so. And when you get to large scale, you have the opportunity then to understand how all these various complex factors kind of come into um, play to impact mental well-being. If we if we think about what is it that humanity is trying to accomplish, right? I mean, we're we've talked for decades now just about economic growth, and GDP has been sort of the north star for countries, but it's because there has been this. Um, conflation of economic growth and material wealth with, you know, the prosperity of human beings. And when I say prosperity, there is only, to me, one metric of prosperity, which is the prosperity of the human mind. Because it, there, there is only one arbiter of reality, and that is the human mind. Without that, there really is, is nothing, because ultimately that's what serves humanity. It's not um, something else that may be at cross-purposes to humanity's prosperity of mind. So in that sense, I, I think that, you know, what we, from a policy perspective, what really uh, can come out of this data as we, as we move forward is an understanding of what factors and policies and what elements are really going to drive that. And therefore, where should we put our efforts from a policy perspective? I mean, listening to all that you're saying, I keep thinking this is almost an existential crisis you're describing. You're saying this is about the mind. This is about our perception of who we are and how we move through the world, right? I mean, is this, is this, a, is this like an, a, a turning point we're at, an existential kind of uh, grappling that we're going through, like how to be well, how to be connected? I believe so. And I think, you know, here's the thing. When you're talking about a population-wide issue, right? And we're, we're saying here in terms of um, mental well-being and the, the decline across generations, we've gone from in, in people 65 and over where only about 6 to 7% have what you would think of as clinical-level distress to 50%. I mean, this is not trivial. Now it's half the population. And we know from certain longitudinal studies previously that those who end up with this kind of level of distress, it's not that they get cured like for life and then they suddenly end up in the other side of the spectrum. You know, often they carry this, you know, depression uh, with them through life and kind of cycle in and out of it over their lifetime. And so, you know, what we're looking at with this is a situation where we're going from maybe 6% of people having challenges to now half the population. And uh, as, these, as these younger people become the older generations, that if this number stays the same or even gets worse, that half the population has mental health challenges. When we look at it from the perspective of the MHQ, we're talking about mental well-being on a functional life impact scale, which means that, you know, when we look at these scores, what we are able to see is that it has a, a 
strong relationship basically to uh, functional productivity in life, right? How many, the lower the MHQ scores, the more number of days people are unable to work or function. And so if half the population is unable to work or function, uh, you know, it's not a problem any medical system is going to be able to solve because who's going to solve it? Like, you need some population to be able to do the work, you know, like keep the, the water running and the electricity on and the all of that. Then, you you know, treating half the, the rest of the half of the population. But, you know, that's from a, from a medical perspective. But I think, you know, when you think about it more existentially, our ability as human beings to, you know, sort of engage with one another and... Um, you know, socially uh, connect with one another is really what allows us to build and create the world that we've created so far. And if we start to see that crumble, uh, you know, what does that mean for civil society and the ability to come together to actually, you know, build the kind of, you know, institutions, global cooperation that we would need for our survival? I mean, even from an evolu evolutionary biological standpoint, we've evolved this way because we're social. I mean, this is how we got this far. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things um, I wanted to ask you about was, uh, quote, perhaps it is not material hardship itself that breaks us, but the lack of belonging and being in it together. Even as we must understand these relationships more fully, these data make clear that to nurture the human spirit we need a new paradigm, close quote. So I feel like that's kind of what you've been addressing because the, the old paradigm, the existing paradigm says, okay, when we talk about mental health, it's you're, you over there are disordered. The rest of us don't have to think about it. But what you're describing, you used the word spectrum before. I mean, how we navigate our lives in the world is all on a spectrum of engagement. Um, and the spectrum of mental well-being. Um, is, is that kind of what you're talking about? And is that, what is the new paradigm? I mean, I think a new paradigm for how we think about what goals we should strive for as countries, as communities. And I, I think that's where we really need to start thinking about new paradigms is like, what will serve, serve us? You know, a, a system, you know, where only you know, 10% can thrive is not a, um, it's not an effective system. And so I think that's the, uh, you know, that's the paradigm that we need to start thinking about is how do we, how do we move toward um, a system where more people are thriving and rather than more, more and more people falling off, um, you know, sort of this, this cliff of mental well-being where you are in a zone of negative functioning or inability to function effectively, which is sort of how our scale is constructed, you know, so when we construct these metrics, you know, those who sort of end up on the negative end are, are folks who are, you know, are suffering or struggling to such a degree that it's having a severe impact on their ability to function in the world. I have to ask, um, what gives you hope? I mean, moving forward, what are your, your aims and goals? And is there anything in particular that, that gives you hope for the future? So I think that, you know, human beings have, have been resilient. Human history is full of dark times that have ultimately resolved in, in some way. 
And, and so I think, you know, just from that perspective, I think we should all have hope in that. But that doesn't mean necessarily that you sort of sit back and, and, you know, hope that it will just happen by itself. But I think all of us have to be active participants in it. And, um, you know, what we hope to provide to enable that journey is, is this sort of large data perspective that really allows us to see how we're changing in real time and what kind of things are actually driving those changes and allow, uh, you know, that dialogue and debate um, to happen. And, you know, so our data is available to all research, uh, you know, and nonprofit and academic researchers to really look at all these relationships. And I think, you know, if we start to think about understanding what's really the most important driver and what what kind of things will really move the needle the most and have this um, a way of measuring it and tracking if we are moving the needle i think that uh can be really helpful for us in shifting course essentially thank you so much for taking the time to to speak with me today this this has been terrific thank you so much our guest today was Tara Thea Garajan, founder and chief scientist of Sapien Labs and co-author of the Mental State of the World Report, Tracking Global Well-Being Among Internet Populations. This has been a Mad in America podcast. I'm Amy Biancoli, and I thank you for listening. And again, I thank you, Tara. Thank you for listening to the Mad in America podcast. Visit madinamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.